Thanks, Anna. That really is the most important part of our service right there. Believe it or not, hearing God's Word read out loud, it's powerful. Hearing it on its own is enough to transform you. It is a living and active, uh, as sharp as a, sharper than a double-edged sword. Thanks, Anna, for reading that to us this morning. Hey, I want to acknowledge a special guest we have this morning. Knowing even the little I do know him, he wouldn't want me to do this, but I feel it appropriate um, given that we did send Jim and Debbie Lincoln out from here tw- uh, 15, 20 years ago, I think 20 years ago, to plant Hope Fellowship, um, which just uh, wrapped its ministry a few weeks ago. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that Jim and Debbie are here today, uh, and it was a, a, pl- a privilege to be part of that service to watch you finish that stage of your ministry well. So well done, good and faithful service as you went out from here. Um, so if you guys can just give a little wave so people see where you're at there today. Yeah. Glad you guys are worshiping with us today. I hope you feel that you're on that side now that you can just rest and be there and, and listen uh, and enjoy that. Well, have you ever found yourself in a situation and said, how did I get here? You, you heard Anna read this morning, like, that's an interesting situation, isn't it? You ever find yourself in a situation, how did I get here? You know, one of those sticky situations uh, where you aren't quite sure what the answer is. Maybe it was a moral dilemma you went through. Or a relational disagreement that you've had in your life. You know, how did I get here? Wow, how am I to respond? What does God want me to do? That's why the Bible speaks so much of wisdom. Because much of life is complex. A lot of life is pretty clear, right and wrong. But there's a lot of areas where we live where it's not always so clear right on the surface what decision is the best to make without wisdom. That's what wisdom is. Well, this morning we head into one of those sticky situations. Uh, as Anna was reading this morning, you're probably thinking, how is Pastor Jeff going to talk about uncovered feet? What in, the, what in the world does that mean? Or Naomi, what were you thinking? Sending Ruth to that place? Well, it's a situation that looks like it can't possibly, on the surface, work out. It's a pretty odd situation. On the surface, it looks like What's the answer here? What is the answer? But in the end, God pulls it together. Much like the way He's redeemed the world. It looks like it can't quite work out. How is God going to pull this together? The way of Jesus' uh, cross, His redemption, our redemption, not His, our redemption through the cross, it's not what the world was expecting, is it? It is not. It's not what you would expect. A situation that looks like it can't possibly work out, and yet it's the way God chose to do it and pulls it together through the cross. Well, this morning, as David said in the song we just read, we're going to look at that theme, redemption. What is it? It means really to to purchase, to buy something back. Redemption. It means by its very nature, then, it's, it's costly. It costs something to redeem it to redeem something, to get it back. It is costly and never quite seems to unfold as we expect it. Sometimes it's messy. On the surface, it looks strange or chaotic. And yet this morning, we're going to examine a redemption that does pull together. And we're going to look at it on two horizons this morning, two different horizons. The first one's going to be in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And then the second is going to be in our lives too. So, grab your outline. Hopefully you got it open there. 
have the text open to Ruth chapter 3. As we know, God speaks through His Word. And when we open His Word, God speaks. And as I like to say, how do you know if I'm even telling you the right stuff? Unless you got it open in front of you and know if I'm speaking the truth unless it's right there. But first, real quick, let's set the stage again. First quick, in case you've missed the first week or two, a real quick recap. Help us remember. Week one, the time of the judges. Elimelech, this Israel, the judges was a horribly wicked time in Israelites' history. Elimelech, an Israelite, takes his family, his wife, Naomi, uh, and two sons from Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine in God's land. But he, so he goes to Moab, a place that worships idols and has not treated God's people very well historically. It's an odd choice, but he does. There in Moab, Elimelech dies, and ten years later, Naomi's two sons die, leaving Naomi to care for her two sons, or her two sons' widows, Orpah and Ruth, who the book's named after. Orpah decides to stay in Moab, but Ruth makes this faithful, courageous decision to cling to Naomi because she's clung to Naomi's God. And so she heads back, travels back to Naomi's homeland, but not hers, to a strange land for her, to Bethlehem when they hear the famine is over. And that week one, Naomi was left in bitterness, wasn't she? God, I know you're in this. I know you're sovereign. I know you're working all things. And yet, your hand is against me, God. She understood God's sovereignty, but had moved on and turned away and maybe forgotten his goodness. Last week, we saw the kind initiative of Ruth to head out into the field to find food, where we met this God-saturated man named Boaz, who receives Ruth, because she'd received the God of his people. She'd come into covenant with, with, with the God of, uh, of Israel. She'd taken shelter. Remember that phrase? Under God's what? Do you remember? Under his wings. Yeah, that's going to show up this week. Under his wings. She'd taken shelter there. And as he had experienced the kindness and grace of God, he extends it now. He shares it with her. And we saw Naomi begin then too to change her view of God from believing in God, not only in God's power, but his goodness too. To now believing God's good plan and everything. Remember what she said? She said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, there it is, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Everything's beginning to change. What was hopeless, what was empty and seemed lost is now getting filled up. It's redemption. Redemption is coming. And now this relative shows up who's called a redeemer. It's a curious phrase to use here. A redeemer. We mentioned it last week, but to start, just to pique your curiosity, but we've got to go into it a little bit deeper today to understand the story. It's called a kinsman redeemer. Let's take a look at a slide. Coming up. A kinsman redeemer. What does it mean? Well, remember first, we're talking about a different culture than ours, a different time than ours. When tragedy would strike a family and they would lose either through selling uh, their land or to cover a debt uh, or a woman lost her husband, God in His law, because of His kindness, because of His good grace, set up these measures to protect the family and in particular, the women of that family. Here's the definition. A kinsman redeemer is a, a relative, kin, kinsman, a relative who steps in, steps in the gap to preserve a family's full participation in the covenant. That's the covenant we're going to talk about. By preserving a dead man's name, his land, and our future in many ways. All right? 
The first way was to avenge a man's death by taking a life for a life if the man was murdered. And that was not terribly uh, a particular uh, relevant or reference in our story. But the second two are, he could redeem by buying the man's land. Where do we first see that? Or one of the places is Leviticus. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest, there it is, redeemer, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So in other words, my brother falls on far, uh, hard financial times. He sells his land to pay debts. I have the right as his relative to come and redeem what he sold, to get it back. And the, the new owner actually must sell it back in God's law, must sell it back. It's brought back into the family line, into the family name, and they return, they can return to the use of that land. So that, that was one of the ways. You could get some land back by redeeming it, purchasing it. The third way, which shows up in our story too, that you could be a kinsman redeemer, was by marrying a man's widow. By marrying a man's widow. So her husband dies, and the kinsman redeemer has the opportunity to marry her. Okay? Here's where we see that in Deuteronomy. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Why? We'll talk about that. It has to do kind of with the covenant. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears even shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that this name may not be blotted out of Israel. And it goes on in that passage to say that if the lady goes to him and refuses, if she goes and says, you're my kinsman redeemer, and he refuses, she's supposed to take off his sandal and spit in his face. <laughs> now, I come from California where we used to wear a lot of sandals. I'm glad I'm in Oregon now. We don't wear them as much here. God was serious here. God was serious here. He took this serious. He took the care of the widow seriously to keep that family name alive. The first son of the new couple even takes his mother's dead husband's name rather than even his biological dad. And then he would receive the inheritance too and the land from, uh, from the dead man. So it cost the Redeemer greatly. Remember that. It cost the Redeemer a lot. He gave up his name. To the, the son took another name. He took the land. He took the inheritance. It cost. But it's also serious because of the nature of God's covenant with his people. What's a covenant? It's all over the Bible. Old covenant. New covenant. In fact, our Bible, the two halves are named after it. Old Testament, New Testament. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's kind of like an oath-bound relationship between two parties. An agreement, especially with God, for God to, to bless His people, to bless them through the covenant as they obeyed. And God's covenant with the Israelites, this is important, was tied to the land. In a way, we can't really quite understand or comprehend today because we're, we're, for the most part, disconnected from the land. I mean, maybe some of you that farm a bit might grasp this a little more, or some of you that like to hunt or get out into nature, you might get this a bit more, but we're kind of disconnected from the land. It began with the first humans, the connection to the land. Here it is, Genesis 1.28. We go here a lot. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth, here's the land, and subdue it, have dominion over it. There's the part of the land over the fish or the sea and over the 
birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, from day one, God's people were to use the land and oversee it and use the land to to, to bless. The land was a gift. The land was grace. All the way from Genesis 1. Be fruitful. Multiply. Dominion over the earth. It was the creation mandate, it's called. They're given this task. Do this. Here's this land. It's a blessing. Take the stuff of the world and make something of it. It's really culture what we're talking about. Culture. It's God-given. Take the stuff of the world, whatever it is in your job, your vocation, your families, your church, your city, your town, and make something of it. Use it. I've given it to you. From the very beginning, he did this. So by the time we arrive at Abraham then, and God's people, the Israelites now, we see a continuity. I've given you the new land. Do you remember what it was called? It was Canaan, the promised land. Use it to bless me, bless yourself, and bless the nations. Here's some of the first language to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. There it is. And I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you, Abraham, you'll be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you, all, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the descendants of Abraham were to be almost like a new Adam. A new Adam. Caring for God's new land now, not the garden, but now this new land, Canaan, the promised land. But never to hoard it. Never to keep it to themselves. They were called to be, in this word redemption, they were called to be a redemptive blessing to all nations. All people, materially, use the land. Bless the world. Spiritually, as they come to you for food, share God with them, the true God. In you, all the nations will be blessed. It's God's covenant. His plan to redeem the world and using this unique people. What was their salvation for? We've been asking that question at Bethany, haven't we? It was to be used through the land. The land was their stage for a mission to the world. It was to be an instrument, you might say, of generosity to the world. That was their calling. One commentator said it was their instrument of generosity to, to bring people to the true God. I'm giving you a gift, so use it to bring people to the true God, this, this, this land. It's the gift of the covenant. Not only that, think about this. Think about, remember the Old Testament, the sacrifices the grain they had to sacrifice, the animals they were sacrificed. You lose your land. You lose kind of that primary piece through which you interact with God's covenant. How do you keep animals alive to sacrifice if you don't have your own land? How do you give a grain offering if you don't have land to grow grain on? You sort of lose that connection. So to lose that land or your name or your peace was like losing a big piece of God's blessing to you in His covenant. They were tied to the land. And redemption for the world was tied to the land. And so as we look at our first horizon, it gets hopefully a little easier for us to see now why this was such a big deal to Naomi 
and to Ruth and to Boaz. They were tied to the land. The need and desire for redemption in the kind actions of the characters we're going to see. So that's First Horizon, one of two we're going to look at today. <clears throat> the need and desire for redemption in the kind actions of the characters. Hopefully you can begin to see why this is so important. That they carry on this family name and get their land by redemption, by purchasing it. It's absolutely critical for Naomi and Ruth. We must carry on Elimelech's name and his land. We're, we're a people of the land. We're a people of the covenant. So let's run through the story a bit. We're going to go much quicker today through the story, but we've got to look at it a little bit today to see what's going on here with Naomi's plan. We'll start there. Naomi's plan. When you wonder and you look at your own life, and you're in one of those sticky situations of your life, when you are doubting, can God redeem this situation? What a mess I'm in. Look at my life. I want you to think about Naomi's plan for Ruth here. Okay? I want you to think about Naomi's plan for Ruth. Now, Naomi should get credit on the one hand. She's found hope in God again, and so she's kind of come out of her depression almost, and she begins to act and initiate things again. And that's what hope does for us. It brings us out. It causes us to act rather than just be passive and miserable and, and just wallow in our own stuff. Hope does that. So she makes a plan. So she should get some credit for that. And I truly think Naomi's heart was in the right place. She wanted to care for Ruth. Let's find a husband, a redeemer, someone to care for you. But I want to be clear, this was a really risky plan. And you might even go so far to say, on the surface, this was not a very wise plan you might look at. Not a very wise plan. Here it is. Clean up, Ruth. Go down to the threshing floor where they're all working late at night, lurking on the barley, and go lay down next to Boaz. That's the plan? And he'll tell you what to do. You're like, what? Seriously, Naomi? That's the plan? Go walking out at night, a woman alone, during the time of the judges? The most wicked time? I mean, that's, that's the reality. It's like when I arrived at San Francisco State at my dorm rooms, and I got there, and it was like, hmm, co-ed dorm room floors. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong with that? I mean, it's kind of, where's the wisdom there? You kind of get what's happening here. What could go wrong with that? And there's also no telling how Boaz will respond to this really forward kind of proposal. Maybe he'd get angry. Maybe he'd be embarrassed. Uh, maybe he would just say, leave. But even with how difficult it was, I do truly believe, or maybe how unwise it was, Naomi's heart was tender in kindness towards Ruth because of God's kindness to her. We saw her change last week. And so, Ruth goes. So Ruth's proposal, from Naomi's plan to Ruth's proposal, she goes. She goes, and you know what she does? She goes and proposes marriage is basically what she does. She goes and proposes marriage. And I think even knowing, Ruth must have known, this is pretty risky. This is a risky plan. But I think too, even Ruth, knowing that, knowing that maybe even it was unwise, because she too is thinking of others. She's thinking of Naomi. She too wants to provide in kindness an heir for Naomi to keep Elimelech's name alive, Naomi's dead husband, 
to, to, to redeem the land so this family would have a place to call home. Ruth too is thinking of someone else. She's so kind and risk-taking. So she goes and she does what Naomi says almost. Did you catch what she did? Naomi said not to do. Naomi said, uh, you know, just, just go there. You know, just go there and, and he'll tell you what to do. Nah, Ruth doesn't wait for that. She goes there and kind of tells Boaz what to do. <laughs> well, not really, but she goes, she lays down next to him. She uncovers his feet, and you heard that there, and he wakes up startled. And what does Ruth do? She jumps right in, doesn't she? She jumps right in. She's like, who are you? And Naomi said, let him speak, but she just jumps in. She says, I, I'm Ruth. I'm your servant. Spread your wings over me. For you're a redeemer. You're next of kin, Boaz. You can redeem our name. You can redeem our land. Marry me. That's what she's saying. She proposes marriage is what she does. Here's the connection we need to make. Here's the connection. Remember Boaz had told Ruth in chapter 2. He said to her in chapter 2, I, I admire you because you've come under God's wing. You've come under God's wing as a foreigner and you've, you've come to a God that you didn't know, but now you know, and it has transformed you, Ruth. You've taken risks and gone on the line and shown kindness that you could only have shown because you know our kind God. You've come under His wing and it's transformed you. And so Boaz, even there, began to almost take her under his wing, provided for her food at that time and protection in those subtle ways it was like him saying wow you're the kind of woman i would like to take under my wing as as well as a husband it's subtle and we don't know why he's so subtle with her maybe it's because he's older than her uh, and maybe quite a bit older and it's just a little awkward as one pursuing a young woman maybe he has lots of other kids already so to add more errors, he's thinking of that challenge. But he is. He's subtle. So Ruth then comes to him now, the connection in chapter 3, and they find themselves in this awkward moment. And it's awkward. <laughs> it is. That's the reality of Naomi's making here. They find themselves in something Naomi's kind of concocted. And Ruth says the line upon which everything in the book hangs. Everything. It's kind of like a cliffhanger. You're meant to go, oh, what's he going to say? How's he going to respond? She says, cover me with your wings. You are a redeemer. It's sweet. It's pure. It's subtle. It's absolutely filled with integrity on her part. Even in the midst of probably attempting, given it's nighttime and they're in the bedroom, Probably tempting and fragile situation. How's Boaz going to respond? How, and this is what we see. Let's take a look at Boaz's promise. So Ruth goes. She proposes in integrity. She basically says, take me under your wing. Marry me. Remember now, they're under the stars. It's midnight. And she's just pledged herself to him. There's probably an attraction there of some kind and probably even a real love maybe growing between them. Even if first and foremost their motives are for others and not self-motivated. And Boaz responds 
with a promise. But a promise that, too, like Ruth, is full of integrity. He blesses her. And he says, you know, you're so kind, Ruth. You could have gone after much younger men, someone your age, someone wealthy, but you've come to me, a redeemer, kin. And he says, I promise I will do it. I promise you, Ruth. Men, it's a picture of godly integrity. I don't want us as men to miss that today. This is a picture of godly integrity. He could have taken advantage of her. It was nighttime. He was in the room. The bed was there. He could have uh, tried to uh, seduce her, influence her. This is a picture of godly integrity of men, of God, to care for, to protect, to provide a future. That's what he says. A future through sacrifice for our wives. This is a picture of that. Now in the movies, this would be the place where the, 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 uh, the violins come in and the, the, the soundtrack swells and they would embrace and what would they do? They would kiss and it would be the end of the movie. Yes, it all ended happy for Ruth and Boaz and we cheered. We walk out of the theater with our tissues, you know. Uh, th- that's what would happen if Hollywood had this story. Or Hollywood would have had us sleep together probably actually there and not live in integrity. But Boaz here in integrity says something. He says, I will do this for you, but there is a closer redeemer. And God has set up the ways this world should work. There's a closer redeemer to Elimelech. And in honor, i got to approach him first, Ruth. i got to. So he sends her home with food, more food, right? And a promise, I will do it, Ruth. God redeems this crazy, awkward, and it's meant to be, moment. He uses this weird setting, this weird scene, in his big plan for Boaz, for Ruth, and for the world. So what's the connection for us? What's the connection for you now sitting in these pews thousands of years later? What do we do with this? Well, here's one thing. In our lives too, God's redeeming of life's awkward and difficult and challenging situations because that's what we see happening here. You know, you're probably not going to find yourself at midnight on the threshing floor, are you? Anytime soon? Some of you are. We need to talk. You've got a threshing floor. I'd like to see that. What is that? But you will find yourself, I guarantee it, in awkward situations. In challenging situations. You're going to get caught off guard like Boaz and Ruth did. Like this situation was for them. Or you are going to find yourself, I'm going to find myself in complex moral situations. What do I do? How do I respond right now when there's two options in front of me and I just can't quite tell which one is best or which one is right and wonder, God, what am I supposed to do? We are going to find ourselves in those. Guarantee. What's the answer? We pause. We pray. We remind ourselves of God's promises. Maybe this story of Ruth and this awkward situation. And we step forward in faith and we act. Because we have a big God who redeems awkward, 
difficult, messy, seemingly beyond repair situations. That's what we do. That's how we live. And he's been doing it since day one for his people. That's what this story means for us in one, on one level. This week, as we've prayed and mentioned already, has been a week of terrible tragedies that our community has, has, has faced. You may find yourself, even in light of that, because of that actually, this week, in one of those awkward situations. Some of our youth who are here, if you're youth, high school age, some of our youth or some of our young people might find yourself in one of those awkward situations. Or you as parents, as these kind of times, what do they do? In, the right, in, a, in a right way, they bring communities together. We come together. We talk about big life issues of life and death and why are we here and what's our purpose and where is our hope. And that's a good thing. It is one of the things that comes out of tragedies that the enemy loves to keep those questions just under the table all the time. When things like this happen, it is one of those moments when those kind of questions, all of a sudden, it becomes okay to talk about those things. You may find yourself this week in one of those. Or maybe an opportunity to help someone might come up where you know you're going to be inconvenienced for the sake of someone. And when I might normally, in one of those awkward situations, respond by turning my back, pulling myself away from the situation, here's what I want us to do. Where you normally might do that or walk away, I want us to think about maybe doing the exact opposite this week. Think, all right, what would I normally do here? And go, all right, God, I'm going to try the exact opposite. I'm going to move towards this awkward situation. I'm going to move towards this messy situation that looks like it's unredeemable on the surface. If God brings something your way this week, one of those. Move towards the hard situation, not away. And here's what we do. Trust God to redeem it and show up. Because he did for Ruth and Boaz. He showed up in a messy situation. Appeal to God's mercy appeal to His grace in Christ, and act. I so desperately want to hang on and control all the variables of my life. Don't you? Don't you want to just, you're, like, you're out there like one of those, ah, you know, grab, or you're the, you know, the plate spinners. You got five plates, and you ever see them do it? And they're like, da, 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 you know, they go around. I want to control the variables of my life like that. I so desperately do. And especially in those awkward situations. Here's the truth. God redeems through the awkward situations. God redeems through those difficult situations of your life. Look at, look at Ruth and Boaz. It looks like there's no way it's going to work. Too many variables going on. Too many variables. Here's what we know. We serve the God who controls the variables. You serve the God who controls the variables. You and I serve the same God that Ruth and Boaz were sitting under that night under those stars. He's the same guy, the same God. He works through the hard stuff. So take hope and act. Go out on a limb. Risk, move towards the awkward and uncomfortable when I, you know, I know my temptation, I want to go back. Move in. 
I mean, think of the cross now. Redemption is messy. Redeeming situations, it's messy. The cross is not what we would have expected. So let's look at that second horizon of redemption. We can't miss this today. That certain redemption we have in Christ, our kinsman, Redeemer. That's where we got to go. we got to take this to Christ. The certain redemption we have in Christ, our kinsman, Redeemer. Think of Christ coming to earth now. He was living on the threshing floor. That was not a great place. A bunch of guys working at midnight on the threshing floor, away from their wives, out at work. The threshing floor was not the place you would send a uh, a respectable woman at midnight. You just wouldn't do it. Jesus came to the threshing floor, our earth. He moved towards all kinds of awkwardness, didn't He? All kinds of challenging, difficult, hard situations. And He loved the people right where they were at, didn't He? He came to us. He came to our workplace, our world, our threshing floor. And He sat there and He drank with sinners. And He ate with sinners. And He sat down next to them. It's messy, wasn't it? It was awkward. Wouldn't be the way we'd plan it. God put on flesh and come, come, come sit next and rub shoulders with a bunch of messy humans. But He does. Add to that, He dies a shameful death. Naked as a criminal on a cross next to other criminals. Add to that the messiness that He takes on our sin. And He gives us His righteousness. It's, it's messy. It's awkward. Really? That's the way God's going to do it? God uses the messy story of Jesus, that strife-filled life of Jesus to redeem humanity. He works through the hard. He works through the awkward. He works through the challenging as He came to our earth to become our kinsman redeemer. And it costs Him, didn't it? Just like it cost every other kinsman redeemer. It costs Him everything. His life. And for a moment, His pleasure and His, his, His his relationship with his father. It costs him, but he did it. And just as God used the plan of Naomi, the plan, and the proposal of Ruth, and the promise of Boaz to bring redemption to their lives, he's got one for us too. So here it is, a plan, a proposal, and a promise for us in Jesus Christ. He becomes our kinsman redeemer. He redeems us. He buys us back. He gives us a name, an inheritance, and He gives us a new land at His expense. Jesus, too, has a plan, a proposal, and a promise for us. So here's His plan and proposal. Take a look at Colossians 1, 12-14. Give thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance, there's that language, of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have, there it is, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. His plan and proposal, save a people by dying for their sins, pay the price and bring us back, bring us into His family now, kin, Bring us into His family. He becomes our kin. 
takes us from one kingdom, one family, places us in another, puts His name upon us, and He gives us an inheritance. Do you see the connection to Boaz? Do you see the connection to what He's doing in His people? And He gives us a plan and a proposal. But one more thing too. A promise. A promise. What's the promised inheritance? What's the one thing we're missing from the kins and redeemer? Let's take a look at 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, 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 all of us who have followed Him, who have been born again passage says so what's the promised inheritance what's the one thing we're missing from the kins and redeemer okay he pays for our sin he adopts us as kin he marries us into his family he gives us his name what are we missing you want to take a shot what are we missing the land we're missing the land aren't we they had it in genesis God's people had it in Canaan for a time. We're missing a future land. That's what Peter's getting at right there. He says, the inheritance kept in heaven for you. Here's what that means. A new land is coming down to earth. A new heaven and earth is going to come down to us. A new place, a new garden, whatever you want to call it. A new land is coming to you. The covenant will be fully restored See the picture from Genesis all the way through? The land is coming. It's coming. He is coming. Our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, is coming and He's bringing behind Him all of a new heaven and earth to us to have. And we'll have it forever. Those are the promises. Our kinsman redeemer is coming. And that's what this table represents today. This table represents the promises of a kinsman redeemer. His plan his proposal, his promise. We see it here. It points us to the cross where that new covenant was made, secured, given to where we now know and Peter can say, you can have a living hope because heaven's waiting and a new earth is coming and we're going to love that land like no other land you've ever been on and we're going to live in that land like no other garden you've ever experienced and we're going to be there in perfection and the kinsman redeemer will walk up to you and look at you right in the face. That's what's coming. And that's what this table represents. Here's what I want us to do. Take a moment. Take a minute. Talk to the Lord. Spend some time with Him. Think on Christ as the kinsman redeemer. Feed on Him now as we're about to feed here on these elements in faith and in prayer. Maybe you haven't before. Today's a day. There is no greater day than salvation, but today Place your faith in Him today or talk to me today if you're thinking like, I've heard a lot of these sermons now. I'm not quite sure. Come talk to me or somebody here. If you haven't though, placed your faith in Christ today. Let these elements pass by. God reserves it for those who are now His kin through faith in Him. Let it go by. Nobody's going to be judging you. Nobody's going to be looking down the aisles. Let's just take a moment though as our servers uh, come and get ready here in the front of silent reflection and prayer.